Stand with me as you turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 6. This morning we'll be in Luke chapter 6. We are beginning a new study um, in the same book, Gospel of Luke, but we're focusing in on some particular passages over the next few weeks. Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26. This is God's Word, and if you let it, it will change life. And He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of His disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear Him and to be healed of their diseases and to those who were troubled with unclean spirits and those, excuse me, who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Pray with me. Father, may we heed these, your words, spoken by your Son. May we put them in our hearts. May we put them in our lives. May they forever change the way we live. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Wherever Jesus went, people invariably noticed something about him. There was something about Jesus that people took notice of. And it didn't matter what he was doing, whether he was teaching the masses, providing food for thousands, or opening up the withered hand of a beggar, beginning a conversation with his disciples on who they thought he really was. Christ had this characteristic There was something about him that was different. We see it time and again. Christ talked differently. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew tells us in Matthew 7, 29, that people were amazed for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. His teaching was on a whole nother level. When people heard him teach, knew he was different. Not only was he talking different, His death was even so different that it made a lasting impression. Mark 15, 39 says it this way. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, when he saw Christ giving up his spirit and he saw everything that was happening all around it, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. He was different. Christ was different in his ability to shatter norms. Just ask the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Or the woman caught in adultery in John 8. Or the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 9. 
Christ was willing to completely shatter the, so, the social norms of his day in order to fulfill his mission, to proclaim the gospel. Simply put, Christ was different. And he was different enough that everyone who saw him knew he was different. Some rejected him. Some accepted him. But everybody had to do something with him. He was just too different to ignore his ethic, his way of living life is something that's not unique to Christ. It is unique in that he performed it at a whole nother level. But it's not unique in the fact that he demands the same thing of us. See, we who are following Christ should be living out that same sort of lifestyle, that same sort of kingdom ethic that Christ lived It's an expectation that he sets for all who would follow him. Christ makes high demands of those who would declare his name. Demands to live the same way he did. And nowhere are these demands so poignant. Nowhere are they so succinct and yet so profound as in the Sermon on the Mount. Luke doesn't give us as much detail as Matthew does in the Sermon on the Mount. But he does give us some of the big things from that sermon. So over the next few weeks, we're going to look at what God demands of us. And really, the Sermon on the Mount focuses on what does it look like to live the kingdom life? What does it look like when we apply the same ethic in our lives that Christ was applying in His? What does it look like when we are following Jesus not only by what He said, but by doing what He did? Not only by proclaiming the gospel... Not only by the, the, the prayer and the meditation and the Bible study and the disciplines of the spiritual life that we do within, but also in the way we walk, the way we talk, the way we live, the way we interact with people. How does it look like for us to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven while still here on earth? You could say we're dual citizens. Yes, we live here, but we also live in a whole nother kingdom. And it's a kingdom that looks very different. Just just ask anyone who saw Jesus. Before we get into what the kingdom life looks like, Luke first sets the stage. Look at verses 17 through 19. And he came down with them. He had just gone up on a mountain with a bunch of disciples. We have this picture in our mind that there's only 12 people following Jesus. That's not true. There's a whole bunch of disciples. So he takes them up on a mountain and he chooses 12 of them. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. We talked about Jesus calling, follow me, calling Levi, Jesus calling Peter and James and John, Jesus calling his disciples. And at this point, he's just chosen the main 12. You finally get, if you're a small business owner, you get to a point where your business gets big enough that you got to have some organization. And that's what Christ does. He gets some organization. He gets 12 that are going to take the reins, that are going to be kind of more leadership type roles, more specifically working with Christ in ways that the other disciples kind of are doing, but not exactly. So he chooses those 12. They come from the mountain to kind of a level place. And a great crowd hears about it. And just like usual, a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the sun coast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him 
and be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch Him. For power came out from Him and He healed them all. Christ is working miracles as He often did, so it's no wonder the crowds would gather. Scripture tells us in several points that crowds gathered around Jesus. They looked for Him. And as soon as they found him, they called out to all anybody they could find. There's Jesus. There's Jesus. And, and people would come in. It was no different this day. People are coming from everywhere. They're coming from the north, the south, the east, and the west. They're coming over the rivers and through the woods, over the mountaintops, even from the coastlands. People are coming to hear Jesus, coming to see Jesus, coming to be healed by Jesus. And Luke tells us that Jesus was on his A game. Look back at verse 19. The crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and he healed them all. Everybody was looking to be healed. You know, our prayer meetings often turn into organ recitals where we tell Jesus the things that are wrong and we look for healing. And and it's not a bad thing to look for healing. That's That's not bad in and of itself. But how great it would be to get that master's touch that bad back pain you've been dealing with. You get the shots for every now and then, but they don't, they're, they're not really helping anymore. What about the, that tumor that you just got diagnosed with? How great it would be to get the healing touch of the master and not have to pay the doctors for all those extra visits and not have to go through all that radiation and all that chemo and all that other thing to try to get rid of the tumor. How great it would be to get a touch from the master, the perpetual sinus cold that, that I live through every winter and every spring and every summer and every fall. Man, I just love a touch from Jesus, right? We all would love to be touched by the master physician. And so it's no wonder that when he's doing these miracles and there's great power coming out of him, that people want to be around him. And so the crowds show up in mass just to be near Jesus so maybe they could be healed too. And in the middle of all the chaos that's going on you can picture it you can picture people coming from all over you can picture the disciples trying to push back against the crowd to give jesus a little bit of breathing room because they'd be desperate to get to him you could almost see it like a security detail of of okay okay trying to get some kind of order let's form a line now crowds don't like to form lines (laughs) some of y'all some of y'all have been to parks like disney you know that that lines are just it's it's rough Crowds don't like to do that. In the middle of all the chaos, something catches Jesus' eye. In the midst of the hustle and bustle, in the midst of all of the craziness that's going on, he looks up. I wonder what he saw. You know what I think he saw? I think he saw much deeper needs than a bad back, blindness, even tumors. I think he saw spiritual hunger. Another point in Scripture, Jesus would look at the crowds and say that they are lost like sheep without a shepherd and so he begins to teach i want to make a note at this point before we get into what he's teaching because i think it's an important point jesus is teaching his disciples he is not teaching the unconverted he is not teaching the people who aren't following him verse verse 20 that we're going to read in just a second specifically says he looked at his disciples and he taught. He's looking at the followers. He's not looking at the people, the world in general. He's not looking at people that don't know him. He's not looking at people who haven't committed their lives to him. He's looking at us, Christian. 
He's looking at you and me. He's looking at those of us who are following him with our lives, who claim to be his disciples, and yet sometimes our life doesn't demonstrate the kingdom ethic that it ought to. He's looking at us. And what does he say? Well, he gives us four blessings followed by four woes. The blessings and the woes that demonstrate the uniqueness of the kingdom life. I want to say one other thing. Some people want Jesus to be a hippie. Some people want him to be a socialist. Some people want him to be an American cowboy from Texas with a giant belt buckle. He's not any of those things. Don't look for the Jesus you want. Listen to what he says. Take heart to what he's teaching. And you'll find that Jesus is so much better than the stereotypes. No matter how good they might sound right now. The first thing he teaches us The first blessing he pronounces is the blessing of poverty. I want to look at each blessing and each woe together because I want you to see both sides of the coin at the same time. Luke 6.20 gives us the blessing. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples. He's talking to believers and he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now look at 24, the woe. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Now, is Jesus saying, well, the poor are the ones that are going to get the kingdom and the rich, you just, you're just, you just stuff it. I don't care about you. Is that what he's saying? No, that's not what he's saying. But it looks like that's what he's saying. But read it. Read what he says. What he says is, blessed are you who are poor. Why? Why are the poor ones blessed? Is it because they're poor? No, they're just poor now. They're not always going to be poor. Look at the last half of this. For yours is the kingdom of God. Now, why would the poor person have possession of the kingdom? Why would you say the poor person has the kingdom of Yours is the kingdom of God. Why would he be saying that to poor people? What he's saying to, first of all, his disciples He's saying it to disciples who do not have much here. Now, what's the advantage of that? Well, if you don't have anything, you can't put your hope in what you don't have. How easy is it for us, and we think, well, we're not rich. Yeah, we are. How easy is it for us to think about the things that we have and put our hope in those things? I'm hoping in my 401k for my retirement. I'm hoping in um, the possessions I have. I'm hoping in my home to be able to build wealth. I'm hoping in my job to have the security to continue to work and provide for my family. I'm hoping in the things that I have. I'm hoping in the material things. I'm hoping in the wealth of this life. I'm not able to hope in anything beyond this life. If that's where I am. If I'm hoping in the things that I have, I cannot hope in the things that are yet to come. And the blessed hope of the Christian life is Christ, not stuff. So when we put stuff in the place of our hope, when we put our hope in things instead of in the Master, we completely miss it. That's why he's saying blessed are the poor. It's a lot easier not to hope in things if you don't have them to hope in. It's a whole lot easier to not trust in your 401k when you don't have a 401k. It's a whole lot easier for physical things not to take the throne of your heart 
when you don't have them. Now, our problem is we're too rich as a society, but even as Christians, we're filthy rich. You know, have you ever heard someone called rich? It's always filthy rich, right? I wonder why that is. Because the more you have, the more likely you are to put hope in those things. When we put our hope in things that we have instead of in Christ, our consolation becomes limited by what we have. There's no hope beyond. You've heard the phrase, you can't take it with you. It's true. So why are you hoping in it? Hope in the one that will last. Let us be careful not to put our hopes in things that are temporary. That's the blessing of poverty. The blessing of poverty is that it makes it a little bit easier to put your hope in the one worthy of our hope. The second blessing is the blessing of hunger. The blessing of hunger, that, that, that doesn't sound much like a blessing, does it? By the way, these blessings, these are not super spiritual things. This is happiness. This is joy. This isn't, this isn't some kind of like, like, oh, I just, I will just sit here in my poverty and be begrudgingly poor. You can have real, lasting joy even when you don't have diddly squat. You can also have real lasting joy when you're hungry. Verse 21, blessed are you who are hungry now. You, you hear the temporal? Now. You might be hungry for a little while for you will be satisfied. Don't worry about, don't worry about the fact that you're a little hungry today. Because there's coming a day when you will be satisfied. In Matthew, he says it this way. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. There's no doubt about it. They're going to be filled. It's as sure as, as sure as I'm standing here. It's, you take it to the bank, guaranteed, 100%, money back guarantee. You will be satisfied. But the woe, verse 25, woe to you, who are full now, for you shall be hungry. When we look to material things for satisfaction, we're always left wanting. Food, there's other things too. Gimme, gimme, gimme. It happens with wealth as well. These things overlap. I want it. Give it to me. It's mine. In Christ, we have enough. Even when we don't physically have enough today, He is enough. The wicked eat and are never satisfied. They eat and they eat and they eat. And not just food. They gather more and more and more and it's never enough. Why? Because they're looking for satisfaction in things that are never meant to satisfy. The blessing of hunger is that when you look for satisfaction in the things that do satisfy, it doesn't matter if you're a little bit hungry. It doesn't matter if you got those hunger pangs right now because you're filling the bread of life. You're filling up on the bread of life. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What he's saying is you cannot rely on the physical things to bring satisfaction. It just won't happen. The blessing of hunger. This is, a, this is totally different. Like you think the ones that have plenty of food are blessed. The ones that have good wealth are blessed. But the kingdom ethic turns things completely upside down says, no, 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 no. It's the one who has to rely on God. He's the one that gets the blessings because he's the one that's looking for the thing that can bless. The only one, the one who is the source of all blessing. When we're in need, we look to the one who has. 
Not just the one who has the stuff, but the one who has things greater than the stuff. The blessing is him. That's why you're blessed when you're poor, when you're hungry, because you're relying on him. Christ is enough to satisfy our every need, whether we even know the need or not. The third blessing is the blessing of mourning. This is completely wacky. That, that, this, that's not a blessing. This week we had uh, Dr. Seuss week in schools, and so Wednesday is Wacky Wednesday, right? I mean, that's cue on the wall kind of wacky. How can it be a blessing to be mourning? I mean, isn't that like the, the almost the complete opposite of blessing? Not according to Jesus. Back in verse 21, the second part of the verse says, Blessed are you who are hungry. Now, I'm sorry, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. But the woe, verse 25b, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. This one seems a little more difficult. And I think it has to do with the circumstance. Sometimes we think our joy comes from the situation we find ourselves in. We are joyful because we've got good news. We're joyful because good things are happening. We're joyful because, you know, whatever around us is making us happy. Boy, is that a logical fallacy. Things around you aren't what make you happy. What you allow to make you happy makes you happy. And if you are finding your joy in the present circumstances, I promise you it ain't going to last long. I mean, all I got to say is two words, and I will prove to you that present circumstances do not last very long. You ready? Two words. Alabama weather. There you go. I rest my case. Boy, do we see a lot of change in our lives. And sometimes it's just like that, and it's totally different. I've been waiting on a phone call. Carrie has given explicit instructions that when something happens to her grandmother, they're to call me because she doesn't want to hear that by phone. So they call me and I go get her. I can promise you that phone call is going to change the way my day looks. It's going to change her day. When she sees me come to her school, she's going to know. She's going to know right then. When you find your joy in the present circumstances, the laughter of today is woefully inadequate for tomorrow. But when you find your joy in Christ, something happens. The present circumstances just don't matter. That doesn't mean you don't struggle through them. You just put them in perspective. Yeah, yeah, maybe that person has died that you love. Yeah, maybe... Maybe that diagnosis is hard to swallow. Perhaps seeing your kid making a bad decision and getting arrested or getting themselves in trouble, that's bad. And there still is mourning. There's something about finding our joy in Christ that allows us to make it through those times a little bit easier. Amen? When we find our joy in Christ, we find that He's able to help us through whatever life may bring. The final blessing it's the blessing of persecution. There was a Chinese pastor that was asked, what, how can we pray for you? How can we pray for the church in China? Should we pray for less persecution? He said, no, 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 don't do that. He said, God is faithful when we're being persecuted. We're growing when we're being persecuted. No, no, I pray for you that you have a little more persecution so that you may see the same kind of spiritual growth that we see. 
You see, persecution, we often look like as a curse. It's a bad thing. It's something that we want to avoid. But in fact, it's a blessing of God. Listen to what Jesus says in chapter, in, in verses 22 and 23. Blessed are you when people hate you. That, that doesn't seem to, that's a square peg in a round hole by our thinking, right? That doesn't seem right. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. If you are hated, if you are scorned, if you are reviled, if you are rejected because you are carrying the name of Christ, you're in company. Think back. Can you find one biblical prophet One, that people loved and heeded his words. I can find one where there's times where they're listening, times when they're obeying, times when they're doing what he says, but as soon as he's gone, they're right back to their old ways. I can find plenty of that. I think of Jeremiah, thrown in a pit and left for dead. I think of the two witnesses in Revelation. We'll get to them in a couple weeks. Those two witnesses that faithfully teach the gospel Eventually, they're killed and their bodies are spat upon because people hate them. You see, persecution is a blessing. Why? Maybe this is a little bit simple way of thinking about it, but I think about it like, I think about it like a, a, like a savings account. Imagine, this is going to be hard to imagine, but imagine a savings account with a great interest rate, okay? like 5,000% interest. Okay. Just, just astronomically high. Okay, you put in money and boy, do you get it back later, right? Okay, sounds good, right? Where do I sign up? Persecutions are the deposits into the savings account that we redeem in glory. And I promise you the interest earned will be so much greater than the cost of the deposits. You see, the blessing of persecution is that those who faithfully endure get their reward. The ones that are undergoing The suffering for the cross, the suffering for Christ today are the ones who tomorrow, who later, who down the road, when it comes time, will receive a much greater reward. Paul would put it this way, and I believe it's Romans. He says the the joy that is to come is greater than our present sufferings. That's my paraphrase. What's coming is worth what it costs to get there. But the woe, verse 26, woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. That does not mean that if people think good of you, that you're a false prophet. But it does mean that when you're teaching truth, you will be rejected. You will be reviled. You will be hated by some. And when we allow ourselves to become complacent with comfort, seeking the approval of men rather than of God, we get right in line with the false prophets. When we're rejected for Christ's sake, we find that his acceptance is worth far more than the empty praises of men. Those will be sweet words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Four blessings that in our world seem like curses. The blessing of poverty. That we learn to put our hope in the things that God has promised rather than the stuff that we have. The blessing of hunger when we learn to rely and trust in Him to satisfy our needs instead of what we have. The blessing of mourning, when we find peace in the Prince of Peace 
rather than our present circumstances. The blessing of persecution when we endure faithfully and find that the end is worth the means. I guess all that remains to be asked is, are you going to find the blessing the way that Christ gives us to? Or are you going to rest in what you have, the things that don't last? i got to be honest with you, there's not much rest there. Not, not in the physical, not in the temporal, not in the earthly. Put your trust in Christ. Christian, you want to live the kingdom life? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Let him worry about the details. Father, I pray that we would be examples of the kingdom, that we would be citizens who faithfully live like citizens of your kingdom. God, I pray that we would find our blessings not in the things that are here on earth, not in the things that that we have or that we do or that we can make or get, but things that only you can provide because you are the blessing. God, help us live like followers of Christ. Help us look like him, talk like him, walk like him, be like him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.